Shall we give the Lord a clap offering, church? Hallelujah. It is always a joy and a privilege to bring God's word into your homes. Today, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of Revelation. We've been studying the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we have covered two churches so far. So today will be the third church, the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Pergamum. Now, this is a compromised church. And what does the Lord want to say to a compromised church? I want you to read with me Revelation chapter 2 and verses 12 to verses 17. It's a short passage. It's a short letter. But I pray that we will glean much out of it. The compelling call of Christ to stay faithful. That's the title of today's sermon. The compelling call of Christ to stay faithful. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 to verse 17. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to open the scriptures. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning. Open our eyes and give us listening ears and give us the grace to respond rightly. So today we commit everything in your loving hands in Jesus' name and people of God said, Amen and Amen. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 to verse 17, the compelling call of Christ to stay faithful. Story was told of a hunter. The winter was approaching and he needed a furry coat. So this cold hunter went into the woods in search of a bear. And this, there was a bear in the woods that he encountered. And this bear was very hungry. And the bear looked at him and said, before you kill me, why don't we just sit down and negotiate? You know, because you need a furry coat and I need some food. Why don't we negotiate? By the time they finished the negotiation, the bear left the table and the bear was fully satisfied because the negotiations were successful. The hunter got his furry coat and the hungry bear got its stomach full. You know what I mean? In other words, sometimes when we sit down to negotiate and we negotiate wrongly and we make compromises, we get killed. That's the moral of the story. Here Jesus is addressing his church in Pergamum and he's calling his church to stay faithful. Why? Because this is a church that is going through unfaithfulness. They are being compromised because of pressure from outside and from deception from within. And I want you to pay attention to this because the whole seven letters that Jesus is uh, speaking to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we already looked at a couple of them. And you'll notice this pattern that Jesus is addressing that they come back to him, that they come back to him, right? So in this case, he's also addressing one important thing that they had forgotten and he wants to bring it back. What is it? It is the lost virtue of faithfulness. You know, you and I, when we look at the world today, do you know faithfulness is not a term that many people use? You know, the baby boomer generation, they were known as people who are faithful, faithful to their work, faithful in their marriage, faithful to the church and the community they belong to, faithful to uh, the Lord in many aspects. But in in the modern generations, as the new generations arise, faithfulness is not something that we see as a common trait, as a common virtue. In other words, there's no faithfulness to the job. 
people choose to leave a job. They, they change jobs so frequently. Not only that, people change partners. People change, uh, jump from one marriage to another. Not only that, people change churches. People change community that they belong to. At the same time, people are not faithful to the Lord. In the last days, the faith is what will be missing, the Bible says. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And the word for faith and the word for faithfulness is the same word. So I want you to listen to me carefully that this is what Jesus is calling his church in Pergamum to. And today, that's what we're going to glean. The compelling call of Jesus as we fight compromise. He's saying, stay faithful. Now, you and I, we need to understand this call that Jesus gives, which is found in verses 12 to verses 17. There are two critical parts to this call. And I want you to listen to these two critical parts, and then we will unpack. Number one, stay faithful in spite of distress from without. And secondly, stay faithful in spite of deception from within. Let me repeat that. Stay faithful in spite of distress from without. In other words, don't give up because you face pressure and persecution. Not only that, stay faithful in spite of deception from within. That means don't give in to seduction. Don't give in under deception. In other words, these are the things that the children of God were facing in the city of Pergamum. Now, if Jesus wrote a letter today to the churches in Castle Hill or the churches in Sydney, and today we are reading one of the letters that he wrote, next hour we will be reading a, a letter that Jesus wrote to another church, wouldn't you be curious what he wrote about that church? That's exactly what we are doing. We are reading what Jesus saw in the city of Pergamum, what his people were doing. And many times when you look at a letter, when you look at a city, you look at the city and say, these are the circumstances in which the people of God live in that city. And God takes all of that into account and then he calls them to say, stay faithful in spite of distress from without and in spite of deception from within. Now let's unpack it one by one. Firstly, it's stay faithful in spite of distress from without. Let's read verse 12 and verse 13 together. And to the angel of church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has sharp two-edged sword. Hallelujah. I know where you dwell, circle that, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Couple of things that are repeated here, where Satan throne is and where Satan dwells. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Now, pause for a moment and let's talk about the first things first. Jesus is writing in verse 12 to the leader or the pastor Either it's a spiritual being or a human being. We already established that. He's talking to the messenger, the pastor in the church of Pergamum. And he's saying to the church leader, the words of him who has sharp two-edged sword. Now, when you hear the word two sharp-edged sword, this is a description of Jesus. 
John already gave us a description of how he saw Jesus, what Jesus looked like to him, what Jesus is like to him. That was in Revelation chapter 1. He gave a whole description, and one of the description is used here. Jesus uses one of that description to say here, and look at verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like a sun shining in full strength. A sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. What comes out of his mouth is the word of God. And the Bible says here, the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. And Jesus is giving this description to the church. Now, when you think of the sword, it speaks of authority. It speaks of power. See, I want you to listen to me carefully. These are Roman colonies, correct? The city of Pergamum is a Roman colony. And the city of Pergamum is almost like the capital of that region. It's like if you are living in US, say you're living in New York. New York is closer, is, is a prominent city like Ephesus. But yet Washington DC is the powerhouse for the entire nation. So if you're living in Australia, Sydney is a financial center. Sydney is a prosperous city, but Canberra is the power center. It's the same thing. Pergamum was the place of power, was a place of judicial authority. It was a place where the governance was done. It was a place where they built emperor, uh, the temple for emperor, and they had built temple for Zeus, the god uh, th that they worship. And they built the god of medicine, the temple for the god of medicine, Asclepius. You know, the one that, uh, the symbol that was snake on it. It's, that's a god of that, it's a symbol of that god. And all these things you find in this place called Pergamum. And here in this Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, Jesus is saying, I have the sword, the double-edged sword, the words of him who has the double-edged sword. Where does he have it? It's in his words. In other words, Jesus' words are authoritative and they are finality. They cut the heart, the Bible says. Look at the verse in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. When the word of God was preached, the Bible says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what happens when people hear God's word. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Bible says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Word of God is that sword. And Jesus says, out of his lips comes the word, and the word is a two-edged sword. In other words, he uses his word to judge and to exercise his authority. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we know this verse, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The two-edged sword is so powerful enough, it's powerful enough to deal with the sin within and the Satan without. In other words, he's able to deal with what goes on in the city as well as he's able to deal with what goes on in the church. But when you read this letter, you understand that Jesus is sitting at the judgment seat. He's almost speaking with a judicial authority to the church, not to the city. He's addressing the church. See, many times we see that God is a judge. We know God is a judge, but you know what? 
The judgment of God does not be, begin at the world. It begins in the house of God. The cleaning up happens here in the house of God first, among the people of God. The pruning, the discipline, it happens in the house of God. That's why here he uses the language, I'm a judicial authority, and he uses in the context of addressing the church and calling the church back to himself. But here, there's a good reminder for us that Jesus is not dealing with the political corruption of the, of the city, but he is dealing with the spiritual hypocrisy in the church. See, many times, people within the church, we are always saying, oh, the politicians need the truth. Oh, we need to wave the flag of truth to proclaim to the world the truth. We sometimes say that Christians need to take a stand and we need to go address this political issue, that political issue. We need to be, do this with the policies and all that. Can I humbly say this? Jesus, when he deals with truth, he deals with it inside the church. In this letter, he's not addressing the, the corruption in the city. He was addressing the corruption within the church. That's why it was the spiritual hypocrisy that he wanted to address. So you and I, we need to pay attention to what Jesus pays attention to in the last days. Verse 13, he goes on to say, I know. I love this fact that Jesus says, I know. I know in the last couple of sermons, I've already established that when you read these letters, you read the letter with the, with the commendation that Jesus gives, the charge that he brings, and then there is a challenge that he brings to them and a counsel that he gives, correct? I already gave you that framework. But today, I want you to pay attention to this word, I know. See, what does he know in specifically here? He knows everything. He's omniscient. And yet he says something specific to them. I know where you dwell. <laughs> Do you know that Jesus knows your address? your home address. You may have blocked it and made it private. <laughs> but he knows where you dwell. Is that what this verse means? Of course he knows everything. He knows the address. But the reality is this, that it's not speaking about the address where you dwell. It's speaking about the city where you dwell, the circumstances of life where you find yourself in, the stage of life, the season of life, the circumstances of life. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And where you dwell, that's where Satan's throne is. What a bummer. Where was this city? This city, as I mentioned to you, was not only a metropolis, was not only a power center, it was a place of culture. Cultural things were happening there. They were shaping the culture of the region. And not only that, it was a religious center as well. That's why they had temples for Zeus, they had temples for different idols that they worship, and idolatry and sexual immorality was prevalent in that place. Not only that, it was a place where their knowledge, it was the epicenter of knowledge in those days. See, there was only two uh, world-class libraries back then. One was in Alexandra in Egypt, and the other one was in Pergamum. Now, in Alexandra, they, ha they had written everything in scrolls, in papyrus, and they had written everything in scrolls. But in Pergamum, they had to, uh, they had to import papyrus from, um, from Egypt. And Egyptians did not want to give them the, the, the papyrus. So what happened is they had to develop a new way of writing stuff. That's why they put it into animals. They wrote in animal skins and they put it together into a parchment. That's where you get the word parchment. 
It's the word from Pergamum. This is where books came from. So they had more than 200,000 works, literary works. They were almost competing with Alexandra. So listen, this was an epicenter for power, for culture, and for religiosity, as well as for learning, for knowledge. And in this place, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, and that's where Satan's throne is. And later on, he goes on to say in that same verse, where Satan dwells. What I want you to capture, why he begins by saying where Satan's throne is, and why, why he ends by saying where Satan dwells, it's not that Satan only lives in that city. I want you to listen to me. Satan can be only in one place, by the way. He could be working in Ephesus. He could be trying to do things in somewhere else, but this is where his throne was, and this is where he dwells. In other words, what was Jesus trying to communicate? Jesus was saying that this place, there was a spiritual warfare going on in the city. He says, I know where you dwell, and in the city where you dwell, you're experiencing a lot of spiritual warfare. Why? Because the powerhouse of Satan is there, and his presence is there. The power and presence of Satan is tangible. You can feel it in that city. Now, this is what many times believers forget. We forget that there is a spiritual reality around us. We only see a three-dimensional world where we see the physical, but what we fail to see is the spiritual. There is a spiritual reality that is opposing. The Bible says the kingdom of God advances, but then the devil and his demons try to resist it. The powers of darkness try to resist it. That's why you and I need to resist the devil. You and I need to know how to wage the warfare, spiritual warfare, the warfare in faith and in prayer. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 to verse 12. Read this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He didn't say, finally, be strong in your finances. Finally, be strong in your health. Finally, be strong in how you fortify your, your properties or your portfolios. He said, be finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Because you're not dealing with material stuff. You're dealing with demonic stuff. You're dealing with spiritual stuff. Listen. This is important. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. See, sometimes the devil attacks you head on. Sometimes he's nudging you sus, uh, subtly. Sometimes we can see the persecution that comes because of the opposition of the enemy. But sometimes we fail to see the seduction that he brings, the subtlety the compromises, the little things in which we take for granted, and he pushes us and nudges us out of the will of God. Listen carefully. This is why he says, don't underestimate the power of darkness. Don't underestimate. I know where you dwell. Where you dwell is a place where the powerhouse of Satan is. His throne is established. Not only that, his presence is there. It's tangible. He's working actively in that city. And in the midst of it, he's calling his people. So he's saying to them, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Verse 12. See, sometimes you think your problem is the president that you have. Sometimes you think the problem is the politician you have. 
the prime minister you have, or the people that are elected in office. So you vote them in or you vote them out. You think the problem will be solved if I vote somebody else in. Not really. Why? Because it's not a problem. It's a, not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. Why? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many times we forget that we are living in a spiritual reality and all you can see is your financial portfolio and your property value and you look at all these net worth that you carry and as a result you fail to understand there is a bigger dimension that you need to prepare yourself for in the spirit just as you do work out for your physical body what are you doing to protect your spiritual aspect of life why because the bible says you and i are called to live faithfully in a pagan world and the reason why jesus says this is because he says there will be a lot of temptation pressure for you to give up deception and seduction for you to give in compromise can easily happen but Jesus says, I'm standing with a two-edged sword in my hand. In other words, he has the two-edged sword in his word. He has the authority to judge and judgment will happen. So therefore, pay attention. He says, stay faithful in spite of distress from without. In other words, he's saying to them, I know your difficult circumstances. I know how challenging it is for you to work in that environment. I know how difficult it is for you to navigate through uh, your faith and your beliefs and your values in a world that doesn't respect it. But he says, I want to ask you for a steadfast devotion. And you know what? The church in Pergamum was steadfast in their devotion despite their circumstances. And that is what we see here. The persecution increased many fold, but yet they remained steadfast. Look at what the verse says in verse 13. It says, yet you hold fast my name. Yet you hold fast for my name. I want you to catch that picture. They clung. They, 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 were, they were holding on to God. They did not let go. They were like relentless. They pursued God and they held on to the Lord. And they said, they hold fast to my name. They didn't deny the Lord. And they did not deny my faith, the Bible says. He says, you did not deny my faith, the faith I've given you. Hallelujah. And then he gives them an example. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He uses one of the members, the church members. We don't know whether he was a pastor or a leader or a church member, just an ordinary church member, maybe a civilian working in one of these powerhouses. And this is what happened to him because of his faithful witness. He was killed. He died as a martyr. Maybe he was a, a brilliant athlete. Maybe he was a brilliant athlete and he refused to take drugs. He refused to bow down to idols. He refused to go and worship the emperor. He refused to do all this. And as a result, they had him killed. Maybe he was a, he was a brilliant scientist. Maybe he was a brilliant scientist. He was working in, all the, in, in the scientific research and he wouldn't compromise on his values. Maybe he didn't want to partake of what they were doing. And he stood firm in his beliefs. And because he now knows too much of what they are doing, they killed him. It could be any scenario, isn't it? 
We don't know what, who Antipas was or what was he killed for. But all we know is he was killed because he wanted to be a witness to the name of Jesus, to the faith in Christ. And as a result, the Bible calls him, Jesus calls him, my faithful witness. Do you know the word faithful witness is only given as a title to Jesus in the book of Revelation? Look at this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. The Bible says from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Chapter 3 and verse 14. The Bible says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the true witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. And Jesus now identifies himself with Antipas because Antipas was killed for his faith. And he did not deny the name of Jesus. He did not let go of the faith in Christ, but he was killed for his belief. And that Jesus says, he, I identify myself with him. He is my faithful witness. You always hear me say this. It's better to live for the approval of God rather than for the applause of men. What can you get by having the applause of men? Today they celebrate you, tomorrow they forget you. But the God in heaven who is faithful for you, God in heaven who died on the cross for you, who shed his precious blood to redeem your life, he says to you, remain faithful. Why? Because you will be my faithful witness. And if you are faithful witness, he is the judge. He's, he's a double, two-edged sword. He's able to discipline us. He's able to destroy the enemy. He will judge. And he says, I want you to be faithful. But let me highlight and say this, church. No matter what you go through in life, always remember this. This persecution in this world is a limited persecution. And that limited persecution is a temporal one. They can only destroy your body. They cannot destroy your soul. So Jesus says, remain faithful. You know, in the year um, 2007, there was an article in Sydney Morning Herald that really broke my heart because it was an article about a pastor, 42-year-old pastor, on the day of his birthday, 42-year-old who was celebrating his birthday, he was killed by Af Taliban in Afghanistan. This is a South Korean pastor who led a team of 22 young people to Afghanistan to do missionary work, to, to provide relief and support to people who are going through pain and suffering in the hands of Taliban. But the Taliban captured them, all the 22 of them, and, 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 and he, they kept them as hostage. And one of them was killed, and it was this pastor. Maybe they wanted to show uh, how serious they were. Maybe they were choosing one person from that, that team. And I imagine this, that the pastor volunteered himself and said, no, 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 on behalf of my team, I'll die first. And he, 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 his body was filled with gun wounds, uh, the bullet wounds. 42-year-old passed away just like that. What would Jesus say to that? Jesus would say, my faithful witness. See, when you and I think of life in this Western world that we live in, you may not face persecution like that, but can I humbly say this? Whatever you face, Jesus knows. 
Maybe you're being snubbed in your workplace because you're a Christian. Maybe they bypass you for that promotion. Maybe they never acknowledge your service. Maybe they don't, they don't celebrate you because you are a Christian, you hold certain values. Maybe they don't include you in their private circle. Maybe they don't give you the privileges that other people enjoy because you don't hang out with them in the bar late at night. Or maybe when you go to a business deal and they say, oh, for, for us, I want you to take us to a geisha. I want you to give us these kind of privileges. Maybe you take me to this kind of bar and you don't. As a result, you lose out on certain things. These are limited persecution and these are nothing in comparison to the world that we are going to enjoy one day in Christ. So what Christ calls us to is forget about this material world. Think about the spiritual dimension. There is a Satan who wants to oppose you, who wants to stop you in your progress. Even if he can't put pressure and persecution, he come alongside and will seduce you. So stand strong. Remain faithful. Stay faithful in spite of distress from without. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, isn't it? So you shouldn't be surprised. The second thing is, he says, stay faithful in spite of deception from within. Now, verse 14 to verse 17, I want you to read this. Because this speaks about deception within. See, many times we can see the pressure that comes from outside. External pressure we can identify. But the internal deception, the internal seduction, the subtlety of how Satan's schemes work, we sometimes don't realize. Read it. But I have a few things against you. Pause there. The previous church, he said, I have one thing in the city of, uh, for the uh, church in the city of Ephesus. He said, I have one thing against you. Here he says, I have a few things against you. And he says, you have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, in the previous verses, he said, you hold fast to my name. You hold fast to my faith. Now he says, you're holding fast to the teaching of Balaam. Some of you, not all, but some who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Two things, food sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality. And he says, this was how Balaam put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And then in verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In the same context, he says, you hold fast to the teaching of Balaam. I think both he's talking about the root issue, the root issue of Balaam and the root issue of what the uh, Nicolaitans were teaching were the same. Now, let's look back in history and find out what Balaam actually did. You know, in Numbers chapter uh, 22 to 25, you actually read about Balaam. And especially in Numbers chapter 25 and verse 1 and verse 3, up to verse 3, this is what it reads. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, let me give you a background. Balak was the king of Moab. He couldn't fight and overcome Israel because the God of Israel was very powerful. So he hired a, a pagan priest, a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam. And this Balaam can hear the voice of God. 
and he called, he gifted a lot to Balaam and said, come and curse the children of God. Because if you curse them and they're cursed, then I can overcome them. Three times Balaam tried to curse, but in the last minute, God changed all the curse into a blessing because he can only speak what the Lord commanded. Now, the story is this. The principle is this, that no one can just curse you willy-nilly. No matter what they try, the, the Bible says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that is raised against you, you shall condemn them in judgment, for this is your inheritance as people of God, and your righteousness is from him. Can you say amen? Same thing happened here. Balaam tried to curse, but he couldn't curse. Three times he failed. Finally, Balak gave up and he said, I would rather you not bless them. Don't even curse, don't even bless, just don't say anything. Well, the Bible says Balaam was paid highly for what he did. So Balaam, with a grateful heart for the high payment he got, Second Peter actually says that he, got, uh, he, he loved the gain that he got from wrongdoing. He loved the gain. He loved the profit that he got from wrongdoing. As a result, he gave them a very clever plan. He says, you want the people of Israel to be cursed? You don't have to curse them. The Lord will curse them if you just do this to them. What is it? Make your pretty girls from Moab go and seduce the sons of Israel. And when they whore themselves, when they do sexual immorality, make them eat food that is served to idols the Lord will curse them automatically. The Bible says in, Deut in Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, read this. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of pure. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. How sad is that? The children of Israel had all that they need in God and yet a seduction that came from within, a wrong teaching, a wrong compromise, a subtlety of the enemy to push them away. This is why I want you to understand this. If the devil cannot kill the church, he will join the church. If he cannot put external pressure for you to stop, he will try internal corruption. That is why you and I, we need to pay attention to the teachings we hold on to, the preachers we listen to, and what we give ear to. Listen. The last days, you and I, we need discernment. And the Bible says here, they had two things. Food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. And I think the teaching of Nicol Nicolaitans was similar. Because Nicolaitans are the followers of Nicholas. I shared this with you earlier. And he would have taught them, it's okay, the idols have no power, you can bow down to them, you can eat the food sacrificed to them, it should be fine. Not only that, you can participate in the sexual immorality in the temples, why? Because if you don't do it, you won't get the business deals, you can't upgrade your property, you can't upgrade your value of the house, you can't do a lot of things, you got to do these things, what? Do what the, what the world does. Participate in this, and it's only a material thing. The body is the one that is involved. Your spirit is saved. You're fine. That's the wrong teaching. Now, if I go around talking about the wrong teachings in so many denominations, you will know that there are so many denominations that still teach things that are contrary to the word of God. That's why in the last days, pay attention to. You know, in my travels, I've encountered this in in countries like Papua New Guinea and, and places where I had to deal with uh, people who came from certain continent. 
I won't mention the name, but there are certain continents where people live immoral lives because they come from certain tribes where polygamy is okay. And so I encountered a, a man who had married seven times and he had seven wives. And he says, I love all of them. How do you, how do you navigate these things? So these are real issues. And Jesus was saying, don't live in cultural practice. Just because that's the culture that's admitted in the culture, that's not your practice. In the culture here, they can shack up before they get married, before they stand in the presence of God and say, I do, they already do everything. Because they go, into a, uh, they, they go, they go and live together. I want to tell all my young people, listen carefully, just because it's a cultural practice, because you see that in Sex and the City series, or you watch it in Friends, or you watch it in, uh, I'm, I'm listing all the ones that came in the 90s, see? That's how far outdated I am. Or if you look at what happens to the Desperate Housewives, again, that's another show that was way back. I don't know what's going on these days. Maybe it's the Netflix. I don't know what goes on in Netflix, maybe you know. But you watch all these things and you say, wow, this is how the world lives but you're not called to imitate the world. You cannot adopt their cultural practices. You cannot say, I can make this one compromise. Can I humbly say this to the couple that lives together without getting married? You need to get married, otherwise you're living in adultery and fornication. That's sin. This is important for you and I to learn. Why? Because in the last days, the Bible says, judgment begins in the house of God. He will come with his judicial authority. He's the sword. He's the double-edged sword. He's a sharp two-edged sword. And when he cuts, it's final. I want you to listen to me carefully. This is why Jesus is calling his church back. The enemy recognizes this. If he cannot curse the church, he will cut up the church. If he cannot kill the church, he will join the church. If he cannot make them, uh, for, uh, if he cannot make them discouraged and withdrawn and give up because of persecution, he will just pervert them. He will try perversion. That's why you and I, we are called to stay alert. What is the call of Jesus to the church? Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. How serious that is. Repent. That's a call. He's saying, I'm not coming yet. I haven't, I haven't started yet. I haven't started the work of discipline yet. But I'm calling you to repent. Repentance is because he's saying to you, I'm a loving God. I'm a loving father. I'm a loving savior. I want you to give you an opportunity to return back to me. What is repentance? Repentance is letting go of that action that you're doing. 180 degree turn, right? You turn around. You're no longer doing the same thing. You make changes to your lifestyle. You come out of that evil that you're doing and you, you walk in repentance, meaning you say, Lord, I don't want to rebel against you. I don't want to rebel against your word. I want to follow you. I want to acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. That is repentance and I want to live to please you. That is repentance and that's what he's calling them. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You want to be in war with God. You don't want to be. And that is what he's threatening. And he says, in the last days, he will deal with it. Therefore, come back. I want you to see the faithfulness of God. Church, in this moment, I want you to just pause and think about this. 
You know, we're living in the last leg of the last days. Lines are getting blurred. What is right, what is wrong? What is true, what is false? What is error and what is truth? The lines are getting blurred. And we look to preachers who are preaching to give us the word. But many times preachers are just preaching what Reader's Digest would say. That's why we gotta come back to the, the authority of scriptures. We need to come back and develop biblical literacy. We need to know what is the theology, what is, what is the doctrines we believe in, the nuances of what, why we believe what we believe. These are important for us in the last days and to stay clear and to teach them not only for this generation, but for the next generation. It's very important because we're living in the days of where it's almost like the, um, the story, you know, the story was told when a store was open in the morning and there was a chaos in the store. Why? Because the previous night, a thief had broken into the store, but he didn't steal anything. All he did was he switched the price tags. What was once priceless has now become cheap. And what was once cheap has now become pricey. So there was a pandemonium in that store. Can you imagine? That's exactly what has happened. The church has lost its bearings. The culture has lost its bearings. We're fighting over things that don't matter in the long run. We're majoring on minor things rather than majoring on major things. That's why in these last days, you and I, we need to come back to discipleship. We need to disciple ourselves, our family. We need to disciple the people that God has placed in our world. We need to bring them back to the word of God. We need to bring them back to the truth. We need to give them the call to repentance. We need to bring them back to command them and call them to stay faithful in spite of distress from without and deception from within. We need to stay true. Now, I want to also say this to you because in verse 17, Jesus says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have heard this. It's not just addressing to one church in Pergamum. He's saying this to all the churches. And what is he saying? He's saying to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I love that phrase, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is hidden manna? Hidden manna is the bread that God gave from heaven. It's angel's food that God gave to the children of Israel in the wilderness. When they couldn't be sustained by anything else in the wilderness, they went in dependence upon God in the wilderness. God sustained them. Because in the wilderness, nothing grows. God had to provide them food and God did and God sustained them. And this is what God was saying to them. If you live in Pergamum and the Pergamum is not feeding you, don't be worried about it. Don't, don't, don't give up, don't compromise because you don't get those deals, you don't do these things. Don't compromise, hold fast to my name, hold fast to my faith, I will give you hidden manna. The New Testament actually says who this hidden manna is. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In fact, in that context, if you read, Jesus says, Moses gave you bread from heaven. Not really. I am the bread of heaven. I'm the one who has come down as bread of life. Listen carefully. Jesus is that bread. And he says, I will give you myself. I will give you life. And this life, you, you, you may not have been invited into the palace to eat 
with the nobles of the city. Maybe you didn't have that country club card membership. Maybe you didn't have that upgrades. Maybe you didn't have that promotion. Maybe you didn't have that pay packet that you desired. But you know what? If you stay faithful, I know how to bless you. Hallelujah. How God is a good God. And verse 17 continues to say, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know, white stone is used in the court, in the powerhouse, in the court judicial system. Black stone represents guilty verdict. White stone they give for not guilty verdict. And Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone. In other words, I'll call you blameless. I'll call you not guilty. And I'll forgive you. You know, sometimes you make compromises, you fail, but when you repent, you come back to him. He says, I will give you a white stone. In other words, I'll declare you're righteous and I accept you. Not only that, I give you a new name. The name only you will know. Why new name? A name is given so that the nature and everything changes. And it speaks about intimacy. Only Jesus and I will know the name. Hallelujah. And he says, I will give you myself. I'll give you intimacy with me far greater than anything the world can offer. So this is what the Lord is saying to us from this passage of scripture. Stay faithful. That's the compelling call of Jesus to the church in the last days. Stay faithful in spite of distress from without. Stay faithful in spite of deception from within. And this faithfulness is all about only one thing. It is about our loyalty to him and our allegiance to him. It's about our core allegiance. And in fact, can I humbly say this? If you know how to be faithful to the Lord, you will learn how to be faithful to your wife, to your husband. You will know how to be faithful to the people that God placed you with. You will know how to be faithful in the work that he has committed to you. Faithfulness begins by being faithful to God. If you compromise on that, you will easily compromise in your marriage. You will easily cross that line in many aspects of your life. But if you keep yourself faithful with the Lord, he gives you the power and the ability because the commandment of God is to repent and to be faithful. That commandment of God is a divine enablement of God. He gives you the power to stay faithful. Hallelujah. My prayer is it that we will be found faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the precious call that you have given to us to remain faithful, to stay faithful. Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and you are good, you're wise, you're in control and you are bringing your purposes come to pass in our lives. You know where we dwell. You know the circumstances that are surrounds us and we know that we have you. Give us grace to remain faithful. And give us grace to be watchful that we don't allow subtle compromises to come and corrupt our soul. That we will not indulge in sexual immorality or in, in, in idol, idolatry or we don't indulge in teachings that are not true. That we will stay true to the word that has been committed to us, the faith, faithful faithfulness that has been committed to us. Grant us grace, mighty God. I pray, Lord, that you will give us grace. I pray that we will partake of that hidden manna and receive that white stone and a new name from you one day and help us to see the bigger picture of an eternal reality, a spiritual reality, and to recognize 
what goes on in our marriage, what goes on in our family, what goes on in our workplace, what goes on in this city and this country. It's not just material, but spiritual. Help us to recognize it and to be armed for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen and Amen. Receive this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you shalom. Go in his peace, church. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We love you. God bless you.